Hi, y'all. This is Mark. I'm inserting this before the podcast and after the fact of the recording to apologize to our guests and to you listeners. We had massive technical difficulties, things you wouldn't imagine. And consequently, I didn't do a great job on the engineering or the hosting because I was so distracted. I certainly did not uphold the high standards we set out to achieve on this program. I'll put more detail in the show notes if I get time and if you're interested, but just so you know, the first five minutes of this podcast are bad, and it does not get much better um, as it goes along. Um, Plus, you'll notice uh, probably a couple times where there's a thrum, a low thrum behind the speakers, and that's because the building that we were in is near an airport, and for some reason... The planes were particularly loud that day, and even though the building is isolated, noise isolated, we got a lot of we got a lot of that in there too. I'll do a better job next time, and we will have our guests back soon to hopefully get them a better form. Thanks for understanding. Cheers. This week on Plot Points Podcast, Larry talks dirty about the Hayes Code. Mark looks into the abyss and the abyss looks back. And Jeff initiates and then terminates his relationship with the podcast. I'll be back. This is Plot Points Podcast. Hi, this is Mark uh, from Plot Points Podcast, Mark Sevy. That music you heard at the beginning of the out- intro was uh, from James Cameron's uh, wonderful film, Terminator, because we'll be co- uh, covering James Cameron today on the podcast. So this is quite an unusual situation for me. Um, neither of my co-hosts uh, is at the table. Uh, Toby is, I don't know where. Uh, we haven't seen him since the film festival, so he's traveling around the country somewhere, or he's on the run. Um, and uh, Mary Claire is still on her honeymoon, although uh, she should be coming back for the next podcast for the holidays. So instead, I've tapped two really good friends, um, very uh, wonderful men. Um, the first is Larry Porcelli Lorenzo, who is, I don't even know where to start with him. Um, just a, 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 the Mary, I call him the Mariana Trench of Hollywood lore. How are you today, Larry? I'm phenomenal. Yeah, thanks. And we're, we're actually broadcasting from Larry's uh, the offices at Maya Cinemas. And a really special treat for me is um, Jeff Lyons, who is a writer um, of both screenplays and books and a wonderful, just a wonderful human being. We've had him at um, OC Screenwriters. And he blew the place away. And of course, um, he 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 also talks at Larry's organization, the SCWA, Southern California Writers Association. How are you, Jeff? I am terrific. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about. Uh, first of all, I, uh, you know, we'll just how's everything going with you guys? Every feeling in good health? Everybody good? Yeah. 
Everything is fantastic. Yeah, you you always are. You you say that, but then you gripe about everything. So I don't know what the hell's going on. I'm just I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, 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 I gripe a lot too, but I'm also very well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you look good. You've lost a lot of weight. I've lost a ton of weight. Yeah, you changed your look. Uh, yeah, you nice. buzzed your your hair. Yeah, about fifty pounds. Wow. Uh, it's taken me about a year and a half. I got to that you know middle aged point and I just saw myself up oh, I'm headed for metabolic disorder <laughs> and I said no I, I refuse to go out that way yeah yeah. Well, you look fantastic, and you're wearing your Gracie Jiu-Jitsu uh, T-shirt, so nobody's going to f with you anyway. So position over submission. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so let's see. We'll do a little bit of uh, what are we watching uh, this week? I myself, I'm just going to really mention it quickly. I watched. I started a series called um, Godless, which is which is really fantastic. I don't know if you guys know about it, but it's a brand new uh, Netflix series and it stars Jack O'Connell is a British actor who is one of the leads in Godless. He was in a series called Skins, which is one of my favorite British series. Uh, he played JJ on the second yeah. the second series of Skins. He's really good. He's great. Yeah, and then uh, Michelle Dockery who's uh, in Downton Abbey, Scott McNary uh, or Mc Scott Scoot McNary. Of um, Halt and Catch Fire. Have you ever seen that? I haven't seen that. Uh, it's really good. And Jeff Daniels. And then uh, Merritt Weber, who's in Nurse, Nurse Jackie. And then uh, the guy who writes it is Scott Frank, who wrote Logan, A Walk Among the Tombstones, and The Wolverine. So it's brutal, uh, but it's 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 a ton of fun. It's uh, really good. So you guys watching anything interesting? You know, I, I've actually gone back and <clears throat> I've been Rewatching uh, Game of Thrones. Oh yeah! Because I've been following the books for years, and I love Martin's writing, and it, it continually blows me away how well written that show. Yeah, is. unbelievable. Unbelievable, and by basically those two guys. Yeah, you know, one, I know. Benioff and Weiss, and it just doesn't get old. Even though I've watched it now, like. I found that when I go back and I binge watch and I watch for a long time over and over and over again a lot of these shows you just see things that you haven't right subtleties of, of, of how they approach the writing that you just miss if you don't really study the shows and this is a this is a master class this this, 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 this whole series, series is phenomenal Okay, thanks, Jeff. Uh, Larry, are you watching anything? I'm watching, I saw the two film, but I watched the Spanish-language version of Coco. Oh, yeah. And it was wonderful experience because um, it was a very cross-age uh, groups in the uh, audience, from young to older. And families came with older. A lot of people brought seniors who spoke only Spanish to the film, and it was just a delight yeah. to see everybody singing as well as because the songs in it are known in the community already, and um, it was just a delight to um, see the experience. Wow. Okay. So, are is uh, are either you writing anything? Because all I'm working on right now is this Revolutionary War script that I've been working on for like a year. Um, and I'm getting paid to do it, but but it's a weird kind of situation. One of the weirdest things I've ever done. You're getting paid. Yeah, yeah I'm getting paid. I'm getting paid. Uh, what about you, uh, you Larry? What do you talk, talk talk a little bit about what you're working on? Well, oops. that's okay. I uh, am finishing a novel uh, called Neath Hollywood Boulevard, 
and it takes place in Hollywood in a uh, movie theater. I'm also uh, doing uh, a screenplay called Looney Moons, which is finished, <laughs> which I wrote, which we came up with the story with uh, uh, screenwriter John Brasha, and I was the one that got to carry out the, the full uh, writing of it, though. And now I'm doing also a, a story of an experience that happened to me uh, for a magazine. Oh, cool. Christianity Today. Oh, Chris, um, Christianity Today. Wow, that's excellent. Although it happened 20 years ago, but it's uh, yeah. that's what the name of the magazine is. Whatever. Not bad for a no, good Jewish boy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeff, you just did an audio uh, rendition of your one of your short stories, right? Yeah, I have a novella that I published... Uh, last year, well, maybe earlier this year, I forget, uh, called 13 Minutes. And I've, I'm experimenting now with a company called Find Away Voices, which is a, a competition company with Audible. Uh-huh. And um, I'm turning it into an audiobook, and I'll be publishing it, uh, hopefully, you know, by Christmas. And uh, I actually got it written into a script as well. I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get funding now to do a, a, a short film <clears throat> of it. But the audio book is, a, is an experiment because I want to see about uh, you know, how to market that and how to because more people are buying audio books now than ever before. So yeah, I've got that going on, and I've also also hooked into a, 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 a very interesting project in China, uh, which is an action adventure franchise that um, one of my students, one of my classes, happened to really enjoy the class I taught, and so he hired me to come in as a development person. And now I'm attached as a co-writer on it. Wow. And um, it's been an incredible experience learning because he's a Canadian, but he's lived in China for 20 years, speaks Chinese, lives in the culture, knows the culture inside and out, knows the movie business over there inside and out. And the things you have to know as a producer and as a writer working in the Chinese market is incredibly complicated. Really? fascinating stuff. Because of the culture or the, the culture government? And the, or? the censors. Nothing gets past the censors. Uh-huh. So you've got to be very, very clear about social memes, about themes, about for instance, you can't have the government be the bad guy. Mm. The government comes in and saves the day. Uh-huh. You can't have the guy in the white horse coming over the hill and saving everybody because that's not how it works in Chinese culture. Wow. They, they hate those kinds of stories. So he knows how to navigate all these cultural memes that get in the way of getting a deal over there. Right. And so we're working, he's, he's working in the writing process with me to add these, these, these features in um, to make the sale a little bit, a little bit more elegant. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an incredible education for me to, to learn as a writer what you have to be sensitive to writing a script for a market like China um, with an idea, the idea of also having it be appealing to you know the world market in general. Mm-hmm. But that's where the money's coming from. That's where yeah. the actors are going to be coming from. That's where the director's probably going to be coming yeah, from. Yeah, yeah, So, it's fascinating. Interesting. Okay. Um, so, uh, wow, that's really fascinating. I, um, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, Larry can probably speak to this too. That's exactly where the money's coming from, right? All, all these productions, a lot of them are coming from foreign from china specifically a lot of uh studios have made uh not only production but distribution deals with these with these chinese companies right 
But they're all making big mistakes. Why? You know, because of the cultural stuff. Oh. That's one of the reasons that I met the, the, uh, the, the Damon film. Like, the, what was the one with the dragons and the... Uh, I'm blanking on the title. Um, the Great Wall. Oh, yeah, yeah. With Matt Damon. completely died right. in China. Um, even though that it was a Chinese director and it was clearly not, you know, the, the, you know, the, the white guy coming in to save the, you know, the, the Chinese people from the monsters. That wasn't the theme of the, of the movie. It still came off very bad. Really? Over there. Oh yeah. Died. The only movies that are going to make, who, the, who do you think are the two biggest stars in China? Um, Chan. Nope. Chow uh, Yun Fat. Nope. Uh, Beyonce. Nope. <laughs> I don't know. Vin Diesel. Wow. And The Rock. Really? Wow. Yeah. Why is and that? it's because of the Fast and Furious film. Uh-huh. They made buku bucks over there. They love that stuff. Oh, uh, okay. And... They love what? The action? Or they the- love the action. They love the cars. They love the muscle cars. They love the, you know, the women in the tight pants. That, you know, mm. so, but the fascinating thing is happening now. Chinese audiences are beginning to turn away from the studio big action movies and those movies are now making less and less money there and they're now looking more and more towards story and original content Mm -hmm. and this is throwing the whole China model for Western companies into chaos because they don't know how to respond to that right now. There has to be, but aren't there advisors or people, consultants like you, like your friend? I mean, wouldn't that be a good market for well, somebody? Well, there are, but there aren't that many of them, I uh, don't think. Okay. And the studios have their own way of doing things. And, you know, they've been, they've been strategically going after this for a very long time, opening offices over there, right. spending millions and millions of dollars. And the studios aren't stupid. I mean, right. You know, they're pretty savvy people when it comes to marketing and sales. Um, but it's still a very hard nut to crack. Yeah. And, and, Hollywood Reporter and Variety have all had a lot of articles lately about the shifting and the changing that's going on in the Chinese market. Yeah. So production companies, you know, if they're if they're following the news, um, they're they're learning some lessons here and getting hopefully getting the message. And I'm very happy about it because of this project with this particular producer because he's really tied into all this and gets the, where the landmarks right. are. Right. So, but it's it's a fascinating thing to watch everyone trying to navigate these changes um, as the Chinese audience also gets more sophisticated mm-hmm. and people start realizing they're not just about action movies they also really like story sure well they have a such a rich tradition right Larry I mean the Chinese well, they do but yeah. you know uh, over the history of film the Asian marketplace has always been the uh, birthplace of uh, action pictures of a, of a different sort and uh, so from martial arts to uh, the stories that went along with them were beautiful, deep, and um, had historical background. Mm-hmm. So they have a, a great culture of that. And um, when in distribution, in exhibition, when you played an action picture, it always did better with Asian markets than um a love story mm-hmm. uh, continuously. And you could trace that back forever. Is that... I mean, the action part of it, is that because of the Chinese opera, the wushu kind of uh, floating in the air, uh, crouching tiger, hidden dragon kind of thing? Because that's a big tradition for them, too, right? The Hong Kong films that 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 eventually infiltrated their markets and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, you know, the martial arts influence um, um, in Japan um, um, is, is, is you know, very substantial, but... 
historically, when you think about the Indian market, you know, in, in, the, in the 1960s when you had the, the, the new wave, you know, film stuff developing, it wasn't just France. There was a whole group of people in India who were, who were really cutting edge with independent cinema. Well, ba- doing some amazing things. Bollywood makes more films than Hollywood, right? Oh well, well, yeah. They churn out all kinds of yeah. all kinds of pretty much the same kind of stuff. But in terms of in terms of storytelling and in terms of cutting edge filmmaking, India had an amazing film film industry, independent film industry in the nineteen sixties. Mm-hmm. Right, competing, I think, right along with Eastern Europeans and the French yeah. with the new with the new wave. You know, so. There's a real rich tradition of cinema in that part of the world that, that a lot of people in the West aren't, aren't all that aware of. Yeah, well, maybe in a future cast we can talk a little bit about how to how to tap into that market because um, I mean it sounds like it's a it's a wave of the future. It's a I know a lot of films do well here domestically, but do fantastic business overseas because they market them to uh, other cultures and other uh, areas like like you're saying these action films. So. I mean, it behooves us to understand that as writers. As writers, you, you have to. And, yeah. and the only genre that seems to be just dead on arrival in all those markets is romantic comedy. Yeah. <laughs> because, I can imagine. Because it just doesn't translate. Right. Comedy doesn't right. translate. Well, and I, and I also think maybe maybe um, some cultural mores of, of romance are different exactly. in, in other countries. Um, so, I, you know, we started a, a new segment uh, a couple weeks ago called uh, Guilty Pleasures or Underappreciated Films. And I, I don't want to spend too much time on it because we're going to run long. But I would like to mention a film that I've loved forever that never has, I think, been given a fair chance, which is Buckaroo Banzai. Um, what an incredible movie. Uh, it, it just... If you've never seen it, I rec- highly recommend it. I mean, it's funny from the very first moment. Uh, they, it's a, I mean, the premise is a guy, it, he's a neurosurgeon and a kind of adventurer, right? He's like, uh, it's hilarious. Jeff Goldblum, Peter Weller plays the lead. Uh, Penny Pretty is played by, uh, what's her name? I can't remember the actress. Oh. Um, very sexy. Anyway, that's the first time I ever saw her. Um, uh, we'll, we'll look it up. But um, what a fantastic movie. I have friends who uh, have uh, license plates that say, you know, Bonsai 6 or Bonsai 7. <laughs> <laughs> Earl MacRoche wrote the uh, script, and he also did Wired. I don't know if you've ever seen the mm-hmm. the John Belushi mm-hmm. story, but that is a fantastic movie. Um, so, anyway. So, my underappreciated uh, – it's not guilty pleasure because it's freaking hilarious. Um, anyway, but under definitely underwatched. It came out, I guess, about the same time that E.T. came out which basically sucked the air out of every theater in the, you know, on the planet. And so it never really got a, never really mm-hmm. got a shot. So any, uh, any comments from you guys about your underappreciated or guilty pleasure movies? Anybody got a plan nine from outer space? Uh, in there? Mine, mine's, mine's a little more, um, I think up on, on the, uh, on the zeitgeist scale, but the 1966 William Friedkin, The Haunting. Oh yeah. Everybody knows the subsequent film that came out. Right. You know, in the seventies and eighties, and I think this another one of, but that was the original, and uh, with Julie Harris, freaking is amazing, and and that film has always blown me away because mm-hmm. you don't ever see anything. Mm-hmm. You, you, there's no ghosts, there's no monsters, there's it's all sound, it's all camera movement, you know, and and it's it's just one of the most. Uh, 
aside from turning the turn of the screw, it's one of the I think one of the great psychological horror stories. Mm. But it is you know it is a ghost story, you know, based on the Shirley Jackson uh, short story. No, I just love it. I'm gonna have to watch it again. Oh, I, I seen it. I saw it years and years ago. And it is terrorizing. It is terrorizing when they're when she's in bed alone and the you know just move over and and it's actually there's nothing there you know and you just have the vibration and you have it was yeah. and it's done in black and white whereas uh, the one that was done um, by DreamWorks um, later on well I think one of their first films they filmed it in where these spruces used to be right. And the set there that they had for it was elaborate and nice, but it was um, um, it didn't capture the horror of the first one, of hmm. the original. It was over, overblown. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to catch. It's hard to catch lightning in a bottle, especially with somebody like Friedkin, because that's very. He's a very atmospheric director, exactly. you know. Yeah. So, what uh, what about you, Larry? Anything? Uh, well, I always have a favorite that I watch that I think is hilarious. And uh, it was appreciated in its time. Um, I had two of them. And uh, one was Anti-Main, mm. which I thought was, it was a Broadway play. Is that, that Rosalind Russell? Rosalind Russell. It was a Broadway play that became the movie that, that went back to becoming a play called Main, with musical. And um, But the original play is so, a story is so well written and hilarious, back and forth, back and forth. Right. Uh, that show it to people today and they laugh you know when i play it we slip it into um screenings for uh, retro screenings mm-hmm. and people who come because they're members will sit there and watch the audience laugh and laugh and laugh at acting and at lines and things that well russell, setups, russell was terrific she was the setups and the lines were yeah. just great you yeah. know everything was just mm-hmm. classic and really done and the other movie i always watch that uh, is always underappreciated or dissed by many was called Putney Swope. Mm-hmm. And um, it was perhaps in its time, you know, uh, revolutionary in the sense of um, uh, uh, the, all the white guys at this corporation voted when the, the chairman dies at the meeting and they all vote for the token black guy and make him, and he kicks out all the rest of the white guys, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and then he started making commercials that were. You know, pretty funny. It wasn't its time a statement, and um, it made a great statement. Right. You know, and of uh, you don't have to accept everything. And it, at that time, you know, in '67, with the revolutionary sense in America against the war and so much going on against racism. What year? '67. '67 around that time. So just right at the start of the we're, cultural. We're dating ourselves. <laughs> Well, I didn't say sixty-nine. I didn't say I remembered that day. <laughs> but it was Robert. It was Robert Downey's Asshole. father, mm-hmm. and uh, his oh, father did it. Okay. And, uh, I don't think I've ever seen Putney Swope. I, I, oh, I know the movie. Great. I know the movie, but I don't think I've ever seen it. So. I catch it on television occasion. <laughs> well, those are great, in my opinion. I. I think very eclectic uh, choices. All right, so here's uh, the focus segment. I did. I worked on James Cameron this week. Um, he's a personal hero of mine. I think, in my opinion, I've read science fiction since I was a kid. I think he really gets science fiction. When I don't, I, I never see a Cameron movie that pulls me out because of something like, you know, that that, that they've done science fiction wise. Um, like Ridley Scott, I also think Ridley Scott is just an amazing uh, director. For but. Cameron also writes it, and um, he's won 10 Saturn Awards and had more than 20 nominations, and the Saturn Awards are the uh, Academy Award equivalent of the sci-fi fantasy film, so he people agree with me, I, I would say. 
Uh, plus, he's done Golden Globes, Directors Guild, etc. Um, and it never ceases to amaze me about how much I think I know about a writer, but I don't until I do these in-depth things. Um, I, I mean, it's nothing like doing one of these to make you feel so wholly inadequate. So, um, for, uh, James Francis Cameron was born October or August 16th, 1954. He's a Canadian filmmaker and inventor. Uh, engineer, philanthropist, and deep sea explorer. And he, um, he was born in Kapuskasking, Kapuskasking, Ontario, Canada. His mom was a nurse. <laughs> Jeff, give me this look. Uh, his mom was a nurse. That's and, not a real place. It, it truly is. Um, it's. Uh, it, it may be not anymore. Maybe they put it out of business. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, his mom was a nurse and an artist, and his father was an electrical engineer. Which makes you, when you look at his accomplishments, you figure he really did follow down the, that path. When he was young, he read science fiction constantly. His family moved to Brea in 1971 when he was 17 years old, and um, he enrolled at Fullerton College, which is a two-year, uh, it's a community college here in California. Really? Fullerton? Yeah. And he started to study physics, but he switched to English and then dropped out before the start of the fall of the 1974 semester, which which gives me hope, because I dropped out too. So... Um, Anyway, he worked as, he worked a lot of odd jobs, and he taught himself special effects. Quote, I'd go down to USC Library and point any thesis that graduate students had written about optical printing or front screen projection or dye transfers, anything that related to film technology. So, um, so I, I, according to the, the stuff I read, Star Wars inspired him to get into film. Because um, he would have been, what, 78? He would have been like in his early 20s or something like that. And I, I can certainly understand that anybody who's uh, in tune with sci-fi would find Star Wars very inspiring. And then, <laughs> this I found this, I don't know what it means, but he, he apparently read Sid Field's book Screenplay, and it gave him the idea to integrate science and art. Now, I have no idea. I mean, Sid Field is one of the driest writers. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, can you imagine? I can't, I can't imagine yeah, my I, brain made that connection. I know. <laughs> So anyway, he, have you ever seen his short film Xenogenesis? Yes. It's, I watched it last night. It's pretty interesting. I mean, con- considering what he had to work with, a 10 little 10 minute short, it was, it was pretty well done. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where he, he and uh, William Wisher, I guess, uh, started out, um, which I'll put again that link uh, on YouTube to that, that short. It's on, I don't know if you've, if you've never seen it, it's pretty interesting. So um, he uh, Wisher also uh, is still in the business, and he has a co-writer credit for Judge Dredd for the original and The Thirteenth Warrior and Exorcist: The Beginning. So um, a lot of times, I think we think that successful people get a break or got lucky uh, or knew somebody, but not Cameron. He didn't go to film school. He didn't know people. He uh, listened to his path to recognition. First of all, he was an uncredited PA on, production assistant on Rock and Roll High School. And a, we know what a PA does, right? Anything. They do. They get the shit jobs. Been there, done that. Yeah. <laughs> I never had to be a PA, but I've seen... I was, I, I was an office PA and a set PA. Oh, yeah. Set PAs are the worst because they oh said, they make you do shit. That you I got do. some stories. Yeah, I'm sure. Then he worked as a miniature model maker at Roger Corman Studios, um, which taught him how to make film because Corman was, is well known for being so quick and dirty. Yeah. Um, and then he was an art director on the sci-fi film Battle Beyond the Stars. <laughs> and it's, I remember that. Yeah, well, it, I, just, I just watched it again. It's the most expensive Corman film ever made. Uh, and the screenplay was written by, anybody know? Uh-huh. You're going to shit when I tell you. John Sayles. Oh, what? Yes, what? I know. 
Yes, what? John Sayles wrote the screenplay for Battle Beyond the Stars. Uh, the score was was by James Horner, who um, he's famous. Yeah, oh he's he's in he's in yeah he's famous. He won the Academy Award for oh, yeah. Titanic. He's yeah, one of the top. He's one of the top. Movie Absolutely, movies. and uh, the special effects were designed by Cameron, and uh, he made the corridors out of McDonald's containers. He got Mc- I know, isn't it amazing? You know, the funny thing about Cameron is every one of his movies has stories like this. Um, <laughs> Then he worked on special effects and design on direction on John Carpenter's Escape from New York. And then in 81, then he was a production designer on Galaxy of Terror and consulted on the design of a film called Android. He was the special effects director for the sequel to Piranha 2, The Spawning, and because the original director left after having creative differences on Piranha 2. Now, what creative differences could you have? <laughs> Their the mouths have to be bigger. The numbers, yeah, the numbers of teeth. Yeah. <laughs> so, more uh, huh? More blood. More blood, yeah. We need, we need <laughs> two more severed limbs in that scene. Okay, so who wrote the original Piranha? No clue. John Sales. John Sales. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, I love Sales because he is such an incredible filmmaker, but he also writes genre-oriented stuff like that, or he did at one time. Oh, my gosh. I, I, well, I didn't know that he... I didn't know that he... They need something that, to subsidize that. his other work. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly... Right. Well, he hasn't turned out anything recently, has he, Sales? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. He's, he's, he's very busy um, doing indie indie stuff. Okay, I'm going to have like to... like super indie stuff. I'm going to have to get... Yeah, I'm going to have no, to get... he's, he's very active. How about Henry Jaglom? You guys know who he is? Oh, oh yes. yes. Oh, yes. Is, is he still in the business? He's still in the business with the same woman as a lead. Oh, no kidding. Wow. Well, anyway, after this, uh, after Piranha 2, uh, in Rome, Cameron was stricken with food poisoning. He was fired, but asked to stay on. He was fired as a director, but asked <coughs> to stay on... Uh, the production, and he got food poisoning. And during this, he had a hallucinatory nightmare about an invincible robot hitman sent from the future to kill him, giving him the idea for Terminator. Terminator, Terminator. be back. And the lawsuits that came out. Yeah, well, that was only um, uh, what's it, Harlan Ellison. Well, and he, but he won. He yeah, I mean, yeah, but they, they did. They just paid him to go away. That's basically it. He's a very litigious. Right. He's, he's very litigious, but they, they they actually, my understanding is they actually admitted some of the wrong ones, because it was based on two of his stories. Well, The Man with the Glass Hand, uh, I think, with Robert Vaughn. It was, uh, yeah, it was a Soldier and... Uh, soldier, he, yeah. Uh, yeah, with glass. Man with glass. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I, when I was coming up, I had heard that he had wrote, he had written, he had wrote uh, a forty-two page uh, treatment for Terminator before he wrote the script because Terminator was extremely hard to sell. Nobody wanted to do it, and mm-hmm. that's true. <clears throat> Excuse me. He has um, there is a forty-two page treatment and a hundred and twenty-two page script. Mm-hmm. Now the script is a lot of directorial stuff, so it's it's much longer than it necessarily needs to be. But what I found interesting is there's over two hundred and fifty slug lines or shots described in that script. And when you think that, I mean, the the rule of thumb is sixty to seventy scenes per. Uh, yeah, he went way. I mean, you can tell. Even back then, he was thinking... Well, he was doing each setup. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so Terminator topped the box office for two weeks, helped launch his career, solidified Schwarzenegger's, of course, and uh, received a critical claim with its praising for action, pacing, and Schwarzenegger's performance, oddly enough. 
Um, it led to four sequels um, and a bunch of comic books, television series, novels, video games, etc., etc. It was selected by the Library of Commerce, Congress recently for preservation in the National Film Registry. Of all the films he's done, Terminator was selected for being culturally, historical, historically, or aesthetically significant. Um, a bit of trivia, which I found interesting, was O.J. Simpson was rejected for the role of the Terminator because nobody could visualize him as a killer. <laughs> and then... Um, I know, that just blows me away. They should have just made him a sports memorabilia collector. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Terminator. Um, also little known is that Cameron wrote the first draft for Rambo. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. First Blood Part 2. And then Stallone rewrote that, so... Um, anyway, uh, after Terminator, uh, Cameron then was hired to write and direct Aliens, which is a completely different take on the movie. I, I analogize those Alien as being a very much of a suspense film, a kind of a haunted house. And Aliens was almost like a video game, right? Uh, just, mm-hmm. And that really goes along with Cameron's, because Rambo 2 was very much like a video game. Rambo 1 was more of a suspense film. So it's interesting that he falls into those number... Number two, those sequels and stuff. Um, he drew inspiration for the alien story from the Vietnam War. Um, he, he said, let's see if I can find the quote, their training and technology are inappropriate for the specifics. He's talking about the American soldiers, and that can be seen as analogous to the inability of superior American firepower to con- conquer the unseen enemy in Vietnam. A lot of firepower and very little wisdom, and it didn't work. So that was interesting. I didn't realize mm-hmm. that. Um, there was a lot of trouble with the crew for production because they were all Ridley Scott fans and, and part of his crew. And so he uh, played Terminator, which hadn't come out yet for them and had to win them over by showing them, I know what I'm doing and I, I get what what Ridley was trying to accomplish. So, you know, female, tough female Marines. Mm-hmm. So The Abyss was three years later, 1989. Um, and he, w- I didn't realize this, but Cameron, at the age of 15... In Buffalo, New York, apparently, which was across the border from Canada, uh, pushed his father to get him diving lessons. And he learned how to dive in a swimming pool in Buffalo, uh, never seeing the ocean. And then when he came out here, of course, he pursued it. But uh, a bit, did you see the abyss? You guys see oh, the abyss? Gosh, yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it, special effects for the water were the first time that a liquid CG form right. had been done, and so that what's, right. that's what led to um, uh, the, T- the T-1000 T-1, yeah. in Terminator 2. Yeah, it's a bit of a departure for him now. Well, what I kind of like about Cameron is he seems to reinvent himself, kind of like the Beatles did. Every album was a new album, similar, mm. similar but yeah. different, you know, and yeah. he, every movie he makes is a little bit different because... After this, um, he did True Lies. Uh, eventually, oh, Don Rickard, different, yeah, yeah. C- completely different, right? Um, he he got um, so anyway. He he fell into T two after that and used the Abyss as the model for the T one thousand. This broke box office records. Uh, apparently, Larry would know. I uh, got him Academy Awards for best makeup, best sound, best sound effects for editing, best visual effects. Nominated for best cinematography, best filmmaking. But lost both awards to JFK that year, apparently. Then he did Point Break in 91, uh, which uh, Bigelow directed it, but he produced it. And then True Lies in 94, um, which I enjoyed True Lies quite a bit. I I thought it was a lot of fun. And then Strange Days, 
uh, oh, yes. came after that. He produced. He was the writer producer for that, directed by Bigelow. Which is so Linda Hamilton, Catherine Bigelow, um, Yale Ann Hurd were all wives. He had a first wife. I don't remember her name, and then the current wife is Susie Amos. But uh, but you know that's. I mean, he seems to work with a lot of people that he becomes romantically involved in. So. So he married Hamilton, Linda Hamilton, in 97. Mm-hmm. According to her, she said it was terrible on every level. I wasn't ready. He wasn't ready. That's really interesting. Um, but that was right at the, the Titanic time, which was 97. And I, Titanic blew me away. I just loved that story. Me too. Yeah. He, I just loved it. He pitched it as Romeo and Juliet on a ship. And that kind of dovetails. I want to talk to you a little bit about your premise line uh, sensibilities and stuff like that. So, um, but he said in a TED talk that the reason he pitched it is he just really wanted to dive on the Titanic. He didn't really care about the movie. <laughs> he wanted to go to the Titanic. That and makes this, total absolutely, sense. absolutely. This was a great line as I heard in the TED talk. He says, "Your imagination creates the reality." And he said he got bitten by the deep sea bug and. Love science fiction, so his imagination created the reality, and he got the he got to dive on the Titanic. Hmm. Um, he he built a seventeen million gallon water tank and a seven hundred and seventy five foot replica of the Titanic. And he said when he went into the submersible to look at the Titanic when it was when he was diving on it, he said he knew before he made the turns every corridor because. He had walked those decks so many times. He knew exactly where he was going, which wow. I thought was interesting. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's you know one of the big highest grossing films uh, of all time. Uh, it was the highest grossing film from ninety eight to two thousand ten until Cameron's other film surpassed it, which was. What do you think? I think it's Avatar. <laughs> he he uh, was he had a record time. Blue people. Yeah, Blue People. Well, he dreamed about that, too. Mm-hmm. That was a dream of his, too. Mm-hmm. He had a record tying 14 Oscar noms with um, with uh, Titanic, mm-hmm. tied with... Do you know what it was tied, What movie was tied with? Mm-hmm. That year? No, in history. Gone with the Wind. No, All About Eve. All About Eve. All about Eve. Really? Yeah, 14 All nominations. Eve, right? Yeah, yeah. It won 11 of the 14 nominations, which tied for the most Oscar wins with... Gone with the Wind. Now, Ben-Hur, Ben-Hur, and then later, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did, it got Best Picture, Best Director, Best Art Direction, et cetera, et cetera, oh, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, of course, there's a famous thing where he said, I'm king of the world, when he oh. got um, Best Director. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought he was being funny, but a lot of people took offense at that, thinking he was self-aggrandizing, which he probably was a little. I mean, how could you not, right? Well, he took the line for the film. The line was in the film. Oh, but, oh, I know, I know. But and the line was previously in a James Cagney film. No, Top of the World. Same thing. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, uh, so he also did a television series called Dark Angel, which I saw parts of, which I didn't. Yeah. I, eh. And also, he wrote a script for Spider Man, which was never never produced. Um, and then in uh, he had planned to do Spider-Man, uh, which was developed by Menachem Golan, which is a name I haven't heard for quite a while. Uh, I don't even know if he's still around, but with Canon Films. And then, um, he, that, which it never went through. But uh, he went to Dark Angel, which, again, you know, this whole thing about sexual harassment and empowered women and stuff. He, he had a comment just recently, a quote, I forgot to look it up, about 
how he's always empowered women through his work, which I agree with, um, because he created a the, according to the quote a superhero a superheroine centered series influenced by cyberpunk, biopunk, and contemporary superhero franchises. So he was ahead of his time, but of course I don't think the world was ready for Dark Angel. Um, but they loved Jessica Alba, who was the mm-hmm. the Dark Angel. So then. Um, it's funny, he talks about disappearing for about 10 years because he went to documentaries. He did, I don't know, like mm-hmm. like seven or eight documentaries. And he said he actually worked with scientists. He was actually taking scientists from NASA mm-hmm. down to the Titanic to show them. Right. Yeah. He said it's a, he said there's creatures down there that are aliens. He developed whole new technologies yeah. for shooting at depth. Right. And, and continued to do that after the war. He's, he, he seemed proudest of that. All the film stuff he's accomplished, he seemed like that science stuff That's was... where his heart is, I yeah, think. Yeah, I think I, so I, too. He's an explorer. I yeah. think he's an explorer. That's what he called himself, an explorer, yeah. yeah. So his films have grossed... Uh, the top three films, which are Avatar, Titanic, and Terminator 2, have gro- grossed $5.5 billion. Three films, $5.5 billion. I mean, talk about... Uh, a slam dunk when you hire this guy, right? It's um, unbelievable. Um, and then he's got some stuff coming up, something called Alita Battle Angel. And I can't figure out, I couldn't figure out if this was live or, it's based on an anime uh, property, so I don't know if he's redoing the anime uh, in animation or if he's doing a live action one. Um, and I didn't I, get I that. Think it's live okay, that makes sense, yeah. Um, and also he'd be making, he, he was announced in January this year, uh, that he would be making a documentary about the history of science fiction, which mm. I can't wait. Wow. Yeah. He said, he stated without Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, there wouldn't be a no, Ray Bradbury, Robert Heinlein. And without them, there wouldn't be George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Ridley Scott, or me. And I, I can't wait. I hope wow. that's going to go through. That's a great idea. Great idea. Yeah. So um, one, he's got. There's some rules for success. I, I I'm going to mention a couple of them because I think they're really uh, inspiring. And the TED talk, he said NASA has a saying: failure is not an option. He said failure is certainly an option, but fear is not. So go ahead and fail, but don't fear. Um, he also said paint your dreams for real. In other words, trust your subconscious mind. Which I know, Jeff, you're a big. Uh, proponent. Big, big me too. Me too. And I know Larry. Um, he said, "Don't don't wait for to be asked or for a perfect condition. Uh, just do it. You know, don't wait for that moment. Don't wait till it's a rainy day when you have a cup of coffee in front of you to write. Just doesn't exist. No, right. And and I, as we all know, I mean, I've sat in in my office sweating, you know, in a speedo because it was so freaking warm here in California. Writing a speedo. Well, maybe not a speedo, but." <laughs> <laughs> he also said thank you for that image you're welcome yeah there you go now. yeah well I have a I have a body and a face for radio <laughs> a modern day Frankenstein is that what you called me thank you there I, I totally I agree with that okay value uh, strive for excellence which is a watchword of mine I always uh, value your past experiences uh, find your drive find what really motivates you uh, be a person of your word which I think is wonderful absolutely do something good. In other words, he, his stuff that he did for the deep sea diving, he felt like that had contributed to the overall good of the world. And uh, seize the moment when it comes. Don't and step through. So, 
Yeah. That's uh, that's uh, James Cameron uh, in in forty five minutes or less. <laughs> well, you know, he's he's one of, he's one of the real auteurs, you know, and you know has a bit of that reputation of the enfant terrible, right? Mm. I mean, when he was when he was uh, shooting Avatar, when a crew member's cell phone went off, he would nail gun it to a wall. Oh my God! Well, the I phone, not the crew member. <laughs> and then when he, when they were shooting uh, uh, Abyss, the, the crew got together and they created a T-shirt that said, "You can't scare me. I work for James Cameron." <laughs> so he has a bit of a reputation for being a tough nut. Sure. But when you think about what directors like him have on their shoulders, the responsibility and the, the accountability right. and what's at stake. Right. I mean, you know, you kind of have to give him some latitude yeah. about being touchy. Well, you're not talking about a, a little twitchy, you know, a little small uh, backyard oh, film, gosh, you know, yeah. where you're talking about millions, hundreds of millions of yeah. dollars in jobs and mm-hmm. everything yes. else. Well, didn't Avatar was $200 million, right? Thereabouts, yeah, it grossed. Yeah. Now it's grossed over two and a half billion dollars, but still, when you're when you're juggling that kind of cash, uh, that's very true. Plus, I think you know he's so immersed. You have to be so immersed in the moment, not only when you're writing but when you're directing, that if something takes you out of it, you know that it, it's a really it's hard to get back to it. It's like this podcast when we we do this podcast and somebody interrupts the flow of thought. You know, you sometimes lose it. The, the, the fast, one of the fascinating things about him, and I think other auteurs like that, is that even though I'm not a real auteur philosophy fan, um, but well, that's because you're a writer. Well, yeah. that's what I, that's the point I'm going to make is that we have a tendency to compartmentalize these these functions of the process. You know, mm-hmm. there's the director, there's the writer, there's the, 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 the people like him who are so creative on so many different levels, where they're creating the technology that they need to make the movie because it doesn't exist yet, which is right. He's been doing with that with Avatar, yeah, you know? right. Um, well, he's been doing that since the abyss. He's been doing that since the exactly, and you, you just can't make these demarcations, right? You know, it's like they do it all, right? And they do it naturally. Yeah. It's it's like part of their grace, you know, like flight to an eagle. You know, you, he can't not do it, right? You know, and that that fascinates me about those kinds of people. Hitchcock is like that, mm-hmm. you know, others. Well, usually when I see written by and directed by, I run the other way. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, yeah, red, but with, flag, red flag. Yeah, with him, it's it's very truly a, a wonderful experience, usually a wonderful experience. So. All right. Um, so now we're going to segue into this month in film history, which uh, Larry's going to talk to us about a couple interesting things. Uh, what you, would you dredge up this week, Larry? Well, the end of the haze commission, so to speak. The, uh, in, the, in the movie industry, we had the Hayes Code for in the 20s through uh, the 60s, almost all the 60s. And it was um, not empowered, really, until the 30s, till after Roosevelt became uh, president and uh, threatened to censor films. So they put a guy in to become the head of the, the who re- enforced the Hayes Code read every script, did everything, made sure there wasn't a word or anything that didn't imperil the morals of America, so to speak, amongst many other things. But in this time, Jack Valenti left the Lyndon Johnson administration and took a job in Hollywood. Then it had been called the um, um, Motion Picture Producer and Directors Group. Now it became the MPAA. And uh, that's where he became, Valenti became involved as head of it. 
and he dropped and changed. They became with a rating system. And, uh, you know, you got rid of... It was the first time films were really allowed to reflect what was really happening in society, so to speak, or they were doing it, but were um, going on their own with it, you know. But the studios were enforcing this and following. But as the mold kept breaking little by little, chip by chip, you know, uh, finally, you know, they just came up with, well, let's make our own code and our own self-policing code. And that's how they came up with the rating system. But one of the movies that was the first one out, rated M, was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And it broke everything that the previous, the Hays Code, would not have allowed. You know, from a woman being uh, the the one in charge over a man, and the man being a meek, timid one, and the woman swearing, the woman being a drinker, the woman being um, leading on sexual uh, at advance. She she was a harasser, so to speak. Right, right. And um, it was a spectacular Broadway play, but and they never thought they could bring it to film. But it broke the mold, and uh, it got an M for mature audiences. And after that, you know, the floodgates were open. Finally, the motion picture again came up with it. The, came up, the industry came up with its own self-policing. Self-policing. Because yeah. the, the Hayes Code was its own self-policing. Right. They had the same thing in Britain, and they um, followed it themselves. It was always self-policed. You know, like you couldn't say the word in English, bum, mm. on the on the screen mm. for a long time. You know, so... You couldn't even uh, say bloody on the screen. So you won't see any movies in the 30s or 40s, you know, or the 50s. Bloody. Bloody until you got to uh, uh, the comedy series, you know. So, mm-hmm. But comedy always was a way of getting around it. How, how did the, how did film noir fit into the Hayes stuff? Because, you know, in the 1940s, you got a DOA and, you know, double, double indemnity and things like that, where the endings were pretty dark. You had dark endings. Um, as long as the dark end, you couldn't make a hero out of a bad guy. You couldn't make a, and you couldn't even do a, um, anything about a true bad guy like Capone without showing him having his demise at mm-hmm. the end. You know, you couldn't do that. You couldn't show the psychological problems he might have had or anything like that. So, yeah. not introspective. When you think of today's, like you mentioned, Game of Thrones. I mean, there's just nothing they don't do in Game of Thrones. They start out with incest. Uh, you know, they they try to kill a 12-year, 11-year-old boy. Uh, it's just incredible. A uh, sister is sold to a warring uh, to... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's just nothing they don't do. I, I can't imagine a world where you couldn't even say bum yeah. or, or bloody. Yeah. Or, or, you know, you couldn't show uh, anybody. You had to... Put up, uh, you couldn't show two people in a bed, right? Right. You could so, not. They had beds in separate places. Uh, I got one foot on the floor. Right. Well, or two beds. Right. Two, two beds. beds right. Wow. So that's pretty fascinating. So that's the, so we're at like an anniversary of yes. the beginning of the Hayes Code, which allowed Hollywood to go from, or not the Hayes Code, the MPAA, which allowed Hollywood to go from no to some, but with warnings, right? And yes, became R. And then it became, these are warnings. Go watch it, but go on. And still have age restrictions. So, so as, as an ex- exhibitor, does the ratings code really impact anything at this point? Yes. Well, uh, as far as the what's in the movie, um, yes, people know that a PG and a PG-13 take in a lot more money. So they don't want an R rating mm-hmm. for their movie. 
uh, kids, if you don't know who any of these references are, then you're just going to have to look them up because we're talking about it's great history, but it is ancient history. So we're going to we're going to go to the Q&A section, uh, which we have some questions. How guys, will anybody want to tell the or listening audience how to get in touch with us if you want to leave a question or a um, uh, a comment um, I'll see people looking for their sheets of paper let me do it it's 919 scripts which is the phone number to reach us and you can leave a voicemail nobody answers that phone it's just a voicemail or uh, Larry do you know the uh, you wanna... it's uh, plotpoints.com plotpoints.com or plotpointspodcast.com which I did, I registered that because Mary Claire kept saying Plot Points Podcast, and it wasn't Plot Points Podcast. It was just Plot Points. But So if you have any questions or comments, uh, and then Jeff, um, where what is your website uh, in case people want to get in touch? JeffLyonsBooks.com. Okay. And uh, Larry, you just didn't have to send up a smoke signal because, uh, but actually the SCWA, Larry's the president of the SCWA, so you could reach him through that on Facebook or OCWriter.com, right? Okay, so questions. Um, guys, What anything come up recently? Oh, wow, gosh, so many questions. Um, I think I, I'm, a, I'm a member of uh, Stage32.com, mm-hmm. which is one of the largest. Let me do a plug here for Robert Boda's site. Um, it's one of the biggest industry networking uh, sites on the web for 500,000 members. They do tr- tremendous work um, helping writers connect with producers and companies. Um, and um, I'm a regular blogger for them. I, I do a lot of blogs for uh, for them. And I've noticed on that site, <clears throat> the writers, well, pretty much all the creators that are on that site are all asking questions about breaking into television. Mm-hmm. And what's the best path to do that? You know, because... You hear conflicting information about spec scripts. Nobody really wants spec scripts anymore. And now everybody wants original pilots. Um, do you have to start in the, in the writer's room as an assistant and then work your way into into actually getting into a seat at the table? Um, how does someone actually, given the fact that television has exploded and is going to continue to do that over the next few, several years for sure, uh, there's lots of opportunities, um, but here's all this conflicting. And I'm confused. There's a lot of conflicting information about writing teams being being scaled back. And it's even harder to get onto a, a writing job in television now, even though there are more TV shows than ever before. It's very very confusing for writers who are trying to create and develop a career for themselves. And is there a, you know again many many questions you know is there a window for age that, that sort of thing after you know forty or fifty should you just you know, move on? Um, I, I don't have answers to these questions, but I'm seeing of all the questions that people are are, are, are asking out there on, on boards like Stage Thirty Two, mm-hmm. lots of people are very very concerned and very interested in finding out what future there is for them in the new world of television and streaming and all that. Yeah, there's there's no not going to be an easy or quick answer to any of this. First of all, to the age thing, Mark Cherry, who wrote um, um, Desperate Desperate Housewives, yeah, Desperate Housewives, was fifty something when he wrote that. So it, it's a it's an extreme example, but it's an example. I think, in my opinion, there is ageism, obviously, because if you're writing um, 
if you're writing television, you're writing a medium that's much more accessible to a much younger audience. Uh, but I don't think it should ever stop you from doing that. Um, the thing about breaking into anything is it's impossible to tell anybody how to break into anything. I still think contests are a great uh, opportunity. Amazon Studios uh, is still doing a lot of um, uh, spec work. You know, you can send things in. Um, you, I don't know the path to Netflix except through an agent. Um, and, and Netflix reminds me a lot of Sci-Fi Channel, which means that they like to work with people who are um, already established. Yeah. So my, my best advice is I think you need to still, you just need to, first of all, a lot of those people I would uh, obvious, I would, I would bet my life that they don't even have a script yet. And they're asking this question. So it's inappropriate to ask, where am I going to sell something if you don't haven't written it first? Second of all, if you can't rise above the noise, don't even try. If you're writing the same crap that everybody else is writing, why even bother? You get one shot, basically. And you know this, Jeff, and you know this, Larry. I mean, you get a shot, and that's pretty much it. So it better be your best work. Um, We'll try to cover this down the road. I don't have a real great answer for this, but the opportunities are there. But there's also a lot of writers like me and you and Larry who also want those opportunities. So you're you're still fighting a lot of people to get that one or two slots in the writing room. Yes, sir. You're correct. Um, however, I have seen the um, expansion in the film world um, of age, and I haven't seen it be closed off at all because I've seen it grow because it's a lot easier to make a movie these days. And in so to speak, it's less costly if you don't have a story that has a big screen budget. Mm. But um, what you look at the proliferation of art houses – and what we call an art house in the trade um, that carries independent features or foreign features. And mostly they're American independent features because Mm -hmm. there are a lot of them. Yeah, but I mean, his question was specific to television. So let's not go down this path right now. I I don't want to get into... But I wanted to go from there, segueing over to TV. I see the same thing because the British have brought their TV over to here, which goes beyond that also. Denmark, all the Netflix has opened up uh, mm. Some of my favorite series are not American series. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, the pro- this problem still remains is you still need access. Access is the the holy grail of our business. And uh, without an agent, without a manager, without some path to that, it, it doesn't matter how good it is. Um, I have a couple things at Amazon Studios, so I'm still, I'm even pursuing uh, Amazon Studios. So anyway, good question. Unfortunately, I don't have any great answers. I don't, I will... We'll do some research and maybe we'll cover it at a f- in a future cast. Um, the other thing, uh, the only other thing I would say is just keep writing. Um, don't worry about the access. The access will come eventually. There'll be an opportunity. But unless you, uh, my old saying is luck is when preparation meets opportunity. If you don't have the, uh, the preparation, the luck won't come because you'll, you'll get the opportunity without the prep. So Absolutely. Yeah, so, Absolutely. So I keep writing stuff and keeping it. and Just don't quit. Yeah, don't quit. That's it. So, uh, Larry, did you have a question? Did the question come up? Uh, I had a question for him. For Jeff? Okay, go ahead. For Jeff, how do you feel like you see we were just talking about the outrageous developments in television. How do you, within you your work of premise and storyline, um, how do you feel that that is handled in today's television? I think that what's happened, which I think is fantastic, is that television companies um, and production teams and writing rooms 
have taken much more of a novelistic approach to development. And so because they're thinking along much bigger, what I call story real estate, you, know, you don't have just 110 pages. You know, you, with Game of Thrones, you've got thousands and thousands of pages, but these series allow people to approach the development process as if they were writing novels. So they can get into subplots. They can get into much more nuanced characterizations. Point. And I think because development in television for series, and it hasn't always been this way, obviously. You know, before the miniseries stuff started, it was all very compartmentalized, very very, very uh, uh, feature film focused in that sense. Because it's opened up, I think it gives people in development, when you're actually developing storylines, much more latitude in terms of being able to tell the kinds of stories that have more of a, of a novel fiction kind of feel to them, mm-hmm. which I think is, is nothing but a positive development for, for storytelling in general and, and in television. I think. Jeff, what, where can people find you, your books? You've written a really great book, Anatomy of a Premise Line, where you talk about how to develop the premise line, where can they find those books? Where can they find you teach also? You do classes online. Where can all that be found? Uh, JeffLyonsBooks.com is my website. I've got all the books up there with the links and any announcements of upcoming events and those sorts of things can all be found there. Okay. And occasionally you do um, guest appearances at local, uh, you know, Southern California venues. So I only do Southern California okay. writing organizations. I'm, I'm, you know, I, we, we we talked a little bit about this, but I'm I'm sort of pulling back from the public guru thing um, and getting more and more into my actual writing because, you know, I'm getting a little long in the tooth and I want to focus on my writing. The writing, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm 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 I love Southern California writers, OC screenwriters. And those are really the only two organizations I speak to. Well, yeah, but, but I mean, you're great, and you're great at it. You held you held the audience uh, enraptured last time you spoke to OC Screen. Oh, it's so much fun! It's yeah. just, uh, I, I love teaching. I'm I'm, I'm I'm a natural teacher. I really enjoy it. I do have a, a new workshop coming up through Stanford University through their writing program that starts in January. Um, you can check out their catalog if you want to try that. It's extremely expensive. Um, I would until I do a private. And they lost. They they just lost to USC. So screw them. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Larry. Do you want to speak a little bit about the Southern California Writers, which you're the president of that organization, and you guys do an event every third Saturday? We do, and we do have bring in people live to speak. And uh, next uh, beginning of next summer, we're going to put on a one day seminar most likely for uh, bringing in different people from different fields mm-hmm. that write to come and share mm-hmm. for a whole day. Oh, that should be great. Um, you also, the book, the SCWA put yeah. out an anthology book called yeah. SCA. It's all about the story. Right. All and, about the story. Uh, Southern It focuses on California stories, right? Well, you had to have, something was a theme of yeah. it. was California. Yeah. It was somewhere well. in there and yeah. he was one of the editors and submitters and um, it's gotten a lot of great reviews, mm-hmm. and um, it's in. Uh, you'd be surprised as to who selected it, you know, and where they had it. You know, like the Steinbeck uh, Center mm-hmm. up in um, up in uh, Salinas is going to do uh, in January. They're going to put a whole big section in their thing there and focus on it. You oh, know, great. as a California book, as about California writer or by California writers. And, um, great. 
So they're going to do that in addition to um, a number of other bookstores and book places and people around the uh, area and okay. country. Fantastic. And um, OC Screenwriters is uh, in continuous operation since 2009. Larry is a co-founder. And we do. Uh, we also do live events, and we have a website that you can find information at ocscreenwriters.com.org.net. We also have a Facebook page, as does SCWA. And the website for SCWA is ocwriter.com, right? Um, and then also my classes, which are wrapping up for 2017, but will start again in mid-January at uh, Irvine Valley College. Um, you can go there, 123getsmart.com. Or um, my website, marksevi.com, or screenwriters.com or scriptwritingclasses.org. I have, I have to do my own marketing, so and I also have uh, Facebook pages and stuff. So, um, and also, if you need to contact the podcast, or you want to uh, throw in a uh, a question or a comment, or you want to call Jeff uh, Squirrely, whatever, so and so, you can't do that, by the way. But um, if you wanted to try to do that. You can call us at 919scripts uh, or www.plotpoints.com. So uh, I, I have to express a deep and abiding appreciation for both of you, your friends and your wonderful human beings, and I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed being with you on this podcast. I hope we can do it again soon. Um, we miss uh, I miss Toby and Mary Claire, but I think they'll be both be back for the next one. Our holiday podcast. Oh, yay. So maybe we'll talk about Christmas movies. But um, anyway, um, thank you very much for for being with me today here at uh, beautiful Maya Cinemas, uh, which is a wonderful theater group uh, with uh, Frank Afar, Montezuma Esparza, and of course, Mr. Lorenzo Porcelli. And Jeff, this has been a joy. Yeah, it's been a pleasure being had. Yeah, well, <laughs> you're a, you're you're another Mariana Trench as far as I'm concerned of uh, of knowledge and wisdom, uh, like my friend Larry. So, so thank you very much, guys. I do really appreciate the time, and uh, thank you for giving up uh, a couple hours on a Sunday morning, which is when we when we record this, and it'll drop on Friday, hopefully. My if, pleasure. Yeah. All right, for Plot Points Podcast, this is Mark Sevy. I wish to thank our guests, Lorenzo Porcelli, who is president of the SCWA, uh, the Southern California Writers Association, at ocwriter.com, and also their anthology, SCA, SCWA Anthology, which is available on Amazon and also makes a great gift. It's uh, California themed short stories by very talented writers. Uh, Mr. Jeff Lyons, L Y. Uh, O-N-S. He is all over the interwebs. Um, you can also find his book, Anatomy, uh, Anatomy of a Premise Line, on Amazon. It's a wonderful book, great read, uh, great concepts, and he doesn't like to be called a guru, but he certainly can be um, characterized that way. I'd also like to mention um, the podcast. You can reach us at uh, 919scripts or plotpoints.com or plotpoints.podcast.com. I have classes starting up in January again, Intro to Screenwriting, Intermediate Screenwriting at Irvine Valley College. Uh, You can find those. The website for the college uh, is 123getsmart.com. That's the community college or the the community ed. And then you can find me at marksevy.com or scriptwritingclasses.org. And the Orange County Screenwriters Association, which is at ocscreenwriters.com, 
which is dedicated to bringing resources to amateur and professional screenwriters. We've got a lot coming up in 2018. Sign up for the newsletter. Again, that's ocscreenwriters.com. And then a uh, shout-out to my co-hosts, uh, my normal co-hosts, who are uh, still out um, uh, doing the wild thing with the world. Uh, Mary Claire Anderson, Van Kempen, and uh, Toby Walwork. Looking forward to working with you guys soon uh, for the next podcast. And uh, we'll be doing our holiday, our yo-ho-ho in a bottle. No, that's not the right one. Okay. Anyway, I'm going to stop now. Um, please uh, be safe. Hug your loved ones and be inspired and do good work. Thank you.